0: Um, maybe a few things about myself, um, as, as you might uh, have guessed from my name, I'm Dutch. Uh, I have worked for a long time at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and I have been there uh, successively at a series of positions which were partly in political science and in methods, and more or less alternating. So uh, I started as a lecturer uh, in, in methods, and then I became a senior lecturer in politics, and, then, and, and, and so on then became a reader in in, in methods and a professor in politics and I'm having a chair in research methods in Nottingham Um, so I'm a little bit of of, of, of a a schizophrenic type Uh, I'm doing substantive research and I'm doing uh, methods and in addition I do a lot of research consultancy which I've always done across a wide range of social disciplines Um, and in my current job at the University of Nottingham that comes to good uh, use because our doctoral training center uh, where I contribute to in terms of teaching methods uh, our doctoral training center encompasses various social sciences from nursing to economics, uh, from politics to geography uh, and then I forget a few others of course, but you get the drift Um, and uh, so to some extent um, I have had the benefit uh, of being exposed to different social disciplines and uh, just like Chris said this morning on the one hand experience that a number of things are quite similar across different disciplines even though they're sometimes referred to by different terms but on the other hand also that there are distinct differences in emphasis Uh, so uh, although methods travel they don't travel without limit uh, But uh, it it certainly helps if you uh, have, in the course of your career, an opportunity to be exposed to people from different uh, social, disciplinary backgrounds. So that's a little bit about myself. Um, Now I'm doing things differently from Chris. Uh, uh, You'll not be surprised because I'm not Chris. Um, I also don't have a PowerPoint presentation, Um, and uh, so I do it uh, in uh, in a a different way. I sometimes really like PowerPoint presentation and sometimes I feel kind of constrained by them. In this case, I felt constrained. When Steve asked me to give a talk here about teaching methods, I said, in a moment of temporary uncertainty, that yes, of course. Um, <laughs> and the longer I thought about it, the more, of this is an impossible task. Um, now, Chris solved this in a simple way. He said, oh, I'm going to talk about big data and then occasionally I draw conclusions from that about how you might make use of those insights in teaching methods. I didn't have such a a good idea, Uh, so I stuck with teaching methods. Um, Now, first thing I want to say is there is not a single fail-proof way of structuring your didactics and your content when you're teaching methods. There are numerous ways in which you can do it. And it depends a hell of a lot on who you are, who your students are and what previous knowledge they bring, what the curricular requirements are, how many credits do you have, how many hours a week, how large a group, uh, how much assistance do you have in, in order to deliver your teaching and all of that. Uh, so there is not one single way, I think, to do it. You have to work within the conditions that are given to you. And as somebody this morning in the discussion said, well, I can do a number of things, but then I kill myself off. <laughs> basically, that, we didn't say it. it, it don't <laughs> work, but, uh, basically, it, it amounted to that. Uh, so you have to work within the conditions that are given to you. And sometimes th- those are generous, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are very restrictive in terms of what you have to do. Uh, sometimes they're very liberal in what you may all include in there. So from that background, I cannot say this is what you have to do. Uh, also because I'm not such a prescriptive person, I think. Uh, I might acknowledge okay and say, no, I don't think that that's a good idea. But there are many ways of doing it well. Just like there are many styles in which you can write a good thesis or a good novel or whatever. You can do this in a lot of different ways. So what I did instead is I wrote down for myself a number of topics, which I want, which to some extent are bees in my bonnet, uh, that I'm, I'm uh, passionate about, uh, and which I have experienced, that I use in my own teaching a lot, uh, and um, that in my experience are sometimes helpful. <laughs> um, so uh, that that's what uh, these these topics are, to some extent disjointed. It's not really necessarily a agenda that starts here and linearly goes there. It is a number of things about mapping tools and methods. Um, it's about data, and with data a little bit reflection on what data are, what they reflect, and a little bit about things what we can do with data, like data linking, uh, in a slightly different way than that, Chris talked about this morning. It is a little bit also about how we think about the cases, our units, units whatever those units are. Um, it is about <coughs> u- the use of statistics and statistical inference uh, and where that comes in and a number of uh, things that we might maybe keep in mind. And it is about data structures, and that those ought to be seen as malleable And if we do it that way, then that helps us. That's roughly a number of topics that are not progressive I couldn't do in in any other order, I think, as well. Uh, But those are things which I think are important, so I'll I'll, I'll try to say a few things about that. Good. Uh, Maybe also, before that, something which inspires some of my approaches to social science research including quantitative research. So this is nothing to do with research. If you drive a car, probably some of you do, the darn thing needs fuel. Um, and normally you have a choice of two things petrol and diesel. If you go to the petrol station or you can get diesel (laughs) Uh, and you have a petrol car and you fill it up with diesel or you have a diesel car and you fill it up with petrol within a few miles you get a reality check something goes wrong and you're stuck in the middle of the road or wherever you are and the whole system has to be reset cleaned out etc. if it's not worse than that so things which we do have consequences in real life, and, they may, and we may learn from that. To some extent, in social science research, we often miss this. And that's a big problem. If you throw diesel in your petrol engine, whatever your data are, if you violate every assumption, because that's the equivalent to it, that, that, that can be violated, quite often, not always, there's some technical limitations sometimes. But quite often, the computer keeps cranking on and comes out with reams of output. And we, individually and collectively, are good in interpreting whatever comes out of that. We're exceedingly good. And we know this because occasionally there are these kind of nice instances where, for instance, a guy called Budayev had a number of randomly simulated data uh, in ecological uh, uh, research, ecolo- ecology like, uh, you know, environmental ecology, not ecological errors and things like that. And uh, he presented that to uh, a couple of colleagues, he analysed that with some kind of method, does and everybody read in there something which either supported or contradicted certain kinds of theories. Uh, I particularly support it. People read into data analysis outputs things that they want to read. So, to some extent, I'm I'm always very, what shall I say it, hesitant in accepting things at face value. Because if we threw petrol in that diesel car, or the other way around, and what we get out of it is a disaster. Only the thing that lacked is that a car came to a standstill. It seems to be driving on well anyway. Uh, and that is <coughs> why I am, to some extent, interested in methods. Because what we try to do is to avoid those situations. Why do we try to avoid them? Because they are not without consequence. Um, take the following example. This is not an example, this is real life. If you suffer from severe depression, you can go to uh, psychiatric help in Britain, uh, and in other countries as well. Uh, And they diagnose you, and they use for diagnosis a number of standardized tests. These are tests that consist of a number of things that you have to respond to, and then at the end of it a score is drawn up by uh, the diagnostician. you are being assessed on the basis of two characteristics generally. One is called depression, the other is called anxiety. Um, and depending upon how you score, you might be particularly anxious or you might be particularly depressed, you get different treatment regimes. In one case, you get behavioral therapy, in the other case, you get pills um, and pharmaceuticals. If you have both, I don't know exactly what. But anybody who has ever dealt with people in that situation knows that there's a standard set of tests um, which have been, by now, internationally accepted um, and your score on that determines how you're classified as anxious or not or depressed or not and degrees of severity and that leads to a regime of treatment. There are very serious reasons, serious grounds for for, for, for doubting the distinction between these two uh, dimensions. The one of which is called anxiety, the other is called depression. Most probably this is a methodological artifact. But it has consequences, this methodological artifact, because depending upon where you are, you're being either treated that way or you're treated that way. Fortunately for most people with depressive symptoms, Things heal themselves with or without the treatment. But for those where that's not the case, it really makes a difference whether we got it right or we got it wrong. Uh, so social science research and research methods also get into medical treatment, into nursing, but also, of course, into policy recommendations, uh, decisions by firms, by marketing, and all of that. So it matters. Um, So, what I want to start out with is a, and and this example will creep up a number of times. (coughs) Uh, What I want to start out with a little bit about what I called a minute ago, mapping methods and and, and approaches. Um, One of the things that is always problematic for students, particularly at the undergraduate level, when you teach methods is that whatever you tell them is new and doesn't link in to other things and uh, therefore it's very difficult to gauge the relevance of it to gauge the importance of it to retain it in your mind Um, and so in a way uh, it helps if you can contextualize methods in relationship to each other So the one thing that I often do is in one lecture, set out the whole canon of things, the whole tool chest and deal very little with it but talk a little bit about what indeed uh, operationalization is, a little bit about what measurement is, a little bit about what analysis is, a little bit about where research questions come from a little bit about the fact that this is not a linear process from A to B to C to D to E but that is actually quite messy uh, in in actual practice. And I illustrate this often with kind of a diagram. And then at next stages in my course, I have this diagram again with one part of it in black and the others in grey. That's where we are in the map. And next time around, we're there on the map, and we're there on the map. And it helps students to, to some extent, relate to where they are. Uh, It helps them also to relate different topics to each other uh, and to ask questions about those interfaces. Now, you might ask, what map should I use? I don't know. You make your own map. Uh, Chris said this morning, there's one kind of known and he, I think he, he referred to it as almost a default uh, approach which is deductive. Yeah. We start with a hypothesis or something like that and then we, uh, we, we, we think about operationalization, data collection, measurement, we go to an analysis method and we then we report the data and then we have an answer to whether or not the hypothesis is supported or not. That would be one map. Another map would be an inductive map. You can equally well make an inductive uh, you can also make maps which are deductive and inductive. To some extent, it depends a little bit upon how much time you have, uh, what you want to emphasize. But if you can, in one way or another, make such a map, it helps students to see that even when you talk about a, a, a seemingly small kind of topic, which, which requires some attention because otherwise they don't get the drift of it, that it fits in a larger pattern of things that can be reflecting. The research process as a whole. Um, now, this, this notion of mapping is not, not necessarily only in terms of the whole of the research process. Um, that I do particularly when I teach undergraduates. I don't teach undergraduates that often anymore, uh, but I've done so for some 30 years. Uh, and, uh, so I've, I've done that at that time. But also at later stages in a curriculum, I'm teaching now particularly at the level of doctoral training centers. Um, you, you don't do that anymore because students have had that in one way or another. But you talk about particular methods, you talk about, for instance, structural equation modeling. Uh, I mean, not necessarily that, but as an example. What is important for them is, again, to see how structural equation modeling is an approach to address a particular kind of problem. And that that kind of problem can in principle also be approached in other ways. There are other methods. But to some extent you could say circular equation modeling is about testing causal models. And you say, what other ways are there in which we can address causality? Or you can say to some extent it's explanatory research. What other ways are there in which we can do explanatory research in the regression tradition, the ANOVA tradition, and all of that. Um, even when you then focus on only one of those, it still, in my experience, helps to put them in that, that wider framework. Regression is not just interesting because it does something, it has a number of strengths vis-à-vis other approaches and a number of limitations vis-à-vis other approach, uh, approaches which address the same generic problem. Uh, and if we can imbue students with that, it not only helps them to see where, regression or ANOVA, equation 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 or whatever, where that fits in, uh, but also under what circumstances they might be tempted to look to other things even if we don't teach them ourselves at that moment in time. So, in a way I think we should think about quantitative methods as a repertoire. And a repertoire consists of a number of things and a uh, number of things that are connected to each other it is not a set number, it is not necessarily A, B, C it might be A, B and D or it might be B, C and E or whatever but it is a number of things that relate to conceptualization, operationalization, measurement it relates to data acquisition, data creation, data collection it relates to data analysis and it relates to presentation, which particular things (coughs) you put together in a module from these different things, from these different boxes, is irrelevant Uh, and that's why there are a lot of different modules which at some level of generality do the same thing yet at a concrete and specific level look quite different. Uh, And they might all work pretty well depending upon who your audience is, uh, what kind of circumstances you have to work in. Uh, and, and, and who you are, with your own experience and background. But my experience is that putting these things in in a context like that helps, emphasizing the fact that in order to be a researcher, you have to acquire a repertoire. It's not enough to be good in regression, structural equation modeling. It's not good to be good in survey design. Uh, only you have to combine these things. And uh, once you think about it that way. You also are able to induce something else with tubes, which I think is very useful. Research as a process is to some extent, uh, if you look well, the embodiment of the art of anticipation. In data collection or data creation, you anticipate data analysis. And in data analysis you work within the constraints of the data that are at hand. Both of those relate back to conceptualization. Uh, so, in a way, if you think about it in, in this, you, in, in this, this kind of interconnected way, it allows us to, to imbue the students the notion that, in order to any of these stages, well, you have to think also at other elements of this, this map uh, in, in, in order to not later on. Regret that you didn't do that. Uh, this is, of course, not, a, not, not an entirely perspective. Uh, somebody who has this has set this out very well in a textbook in Norman Blakey, uh, one of his textbooks, um, where he indeed uh, very much emphasizes how, uh, even in different um, perspectives of what research is about, it's always a matter of anticipation on next stages, and without that, the current stage where you are. Is suboptimal. Uh, so that's, that's, that's so the consequence of that is indeed uh, to do that and use such a map as a running thread, uh, as as a reminder. Now we're here, and now we're traveling there. This is how they connected, uh, and so on. Of course, this is very much emphasized if you have the opportunity uh, to have hands-on experience with real research projects. Uh, Chris referred to that this morning with an mTurk MTurk example where whatever it is, a student or group of students do something in terms of designing a problem or a question, uh, a way of addressing it by way of a survey in that case, uh, running the survey uh, and analyzing the data. Um, If you have the opportunity to embed uh, participation in and hands-on experience with a research project, a real research project in, uh, in, in your module, my experience is that generally this really helps to motivate students. It also helps for them to see what it means when you say things in the abstract and how it works out in practice. We do this at the moment in Nottingham in our undergraduate uh, methods training in a module that's called uh, DPR, Doing Political Research. Um, where um, the group of students, which are over 200, is divided into small groups of about 15, each of which addresses a real-world problem that is commissioned to us by third actors, third parties, like city council, like a shelter for the homeless, like people who run a food bank, Uh, all local, uh, but they have real questions. How is this working? Is there a clientele for this? Uh, If we were to do this, would it ameliorate that problem? And so on. Um, All those questions are collected by us, they're screened by us, because not all of them are of a scale that fits within that module. Uh, But quite a few can be tweaked to fit in that module then each group selects one of those uh, problems and then they have a basically a dual track module on the one track you get classical instruction about of thing and in the second track they collectively with a tutor develop that project but at the end they have to report it back to the commissioning actor whether it was the city council or the food bank or whoever else it was and they, they have to do that so it's not a matter of at a certain moment, well, this is a flippant, cost-free and, and, and consequence-free exercise. This has will work Now, this works great. Uh, there's a downside, of course, you can imagine that. It's labor-intensive. Uh, and i very well realized that this is not always possible. Um, but, nevertheless, if it is possible, it's a great way to uh, enhance uh, the understanding of what otherwise would be much more abstract uh, kind of teachings. Good. So that was about putting things in context with respect to each other. Other topic. Well, time. The Data. There is. Quite often um, a lack and, and, and also maintain technical the lack of reflection on what it is that data tell us about. This sounds almost like what Chris said this morning, but I have something else in mind. Uh, data are reflecting relationships between what? In what form? If we address that question we find that there are many different answers to that and that each of those answers leads to a different kind of data even though in their numerical representation they all might look like integers or whatever kind of numbers they are. And so we need somewhere a, what Kuhns called, a theory of data. way of classifying or thinking about data, classifying one way, but uh, the text Solomon of data. So Coombs, for instance says, okay, data are relationships. Yeah? So there could be relationships between what? Well, there could be relationships between elements of <coughs> one population, or there could be relationships between elements of two populations. So if I think of a Respondent responding to a survey question and saying yes, and that's a relationship between person and an item. So that are elements from two different populations. Uh, if uh, you think about uh, people in terms of friendship relations, and uh, one means that there is a friendship relation, then that's a relationship between elements of the same population, one set of populations. Um, You also can think in terms of relationship, in terms of what Coulton's called binary or quaternary relationships. So, for instance, if I say, I wish I could, uh, I like this cup of coffee, (laughs) uh, then that's a relationship between myself and that cup of coffee. If I say, I like this cup of coffee better than that, then that's not a binary relationship anymore. Because it's a relationship relationship from me to that compared to a relationship from me to (coughs) that. And so I get two binary relationships compared in a new kind of data, which is a quaternary relation. Um, And finally, Coombs makes a further distinction in whether or not uh, the relationship that is expressed in data is a similarity or a dominance relationship. So if you say I like this cup of coffee, you might say that's a similarity relationship. It's close enough to my ideal cup of coffee to say yes, I like it. Um, If I say I like that cup of coffee better than that one, or this political party better than that one, then there is a dominance relationship. Uh, In in this case, that say the distance or similarity between me and the one party is different from that the other part. Now, the relevance of this is that each of these data types, if you want to call it that way, <coughs> has different implications for how those data could validly be analyzed. If you forget that, because at the, at the end of the day it's a, it are all numbers, and you could crank each of those set of numbers through any statistical you always get output and sometimes this is output of the garbage in, garbage out (laughs) character because you violated about every assumption that there is and sometimes it fits so thinking about data helps us to be used as a tool in a way uh, or as a heuristic to choose from a lot of different Statistical or data analytical tools that are around. But it also helps us in other ways. Once we think about that, not every relationship that's reflected in data is one of, say, the respondent versus item type, but that it might be all kinds of other ones as well. We can ask other questions. We can even ask ourselves: can we," we start out with? Transform this to look like that because then we can use those approaches which help a lot. So, can we do that? Can we, on the basis of, for instance, uh, respondent reactions, responses to items, uh, get to a matrix of similarities between individuals? And on that basis, get to something like uh, clustering people rather than something else um, in types. Uh, Or could we do that the other way around, similar between items, uh, which is more commonly known uh, in in a number of ways of dimensionalization or or, or things like that. Uh, So it it helps also, again, to see how using statistical methods or data analytical methods can bring you from one domain to another domain, even though the original information is, is exactly the same. And that opens up a number of opportunities uh, that wouldn't be there if we only think about data which seems to be in textbook format, the default of the respondent versus item response uh, uh, kind of approach. There's a lot more than that. And we can transform data from one form to the other form and, there, and thereby create a whole new set of opportunities that we otherwise would overlook. Um, so, what we need is a reflection, I think, in, in our teaching on data at some stage. It doesn't always have to be equally deep, it doesn't always have to be a full uh, full, uh, data taxonomy but it's very simple to compare for instance how on the one hand the traditional rectangular data matrix looks with cases in the rows and variables in columns and on the other hand an equally well known data matrix which is the distances in miles or in hours traveling between 20 cities in the UK or wherever, for that matter. They're both numbers. Uh, We can do all kinds of things, but they reflect something else. And thinking about it in that way also allows us to think that even when we think about responses to items, it depends upon what the item is about, how we should interpret the response. So my response, I like cup coffee A better than cup coffee B, or I like party A better than party B, is a different kind of datum than when I say I like party A. And therefore it requires also in its analysis its proper tool, and that's not the same for the one and for the other, even though in both cases it is just a yes or a no, uh, which First instance looks the same, but it isn't. But that's why we need data, uh, reflection on data, and a little bit of data theory um, in order also to explain to students why there is this sometimes bewildering plethora of different data analytical methods. Well, to some extent, they're there because everybody invents the wheel again and then puts his own stamp on it. And this is a new method, X, Y, and Z. Uh, but to some extent, there are really different approaches. And it makes a lot of difference uh, whether, for instance, you factor you analyze something or whether you unfold something. Uh, the data look the same, but what you get out of it is something entirely different. And in the one case, it was diesel in the petrol car, in the other case, it's not. Okay, Um, data, uh, this morning Chris talked about big data. Uh, The big was particularly big in one respect, and and data can be big in several respects, or small as far as that's concerned. Uh, When when we have a data matrix we often refer to it as n times k. n is the number of cases and k is the number of columns or or variables. Uh, Many of the big data examples are big in n. And small in K. Um, and um, uh, of course one of the problems that we sometimes have is if we go beyond description that's indeed where we go to explanation but sometimes also to prediction because in a way I like to think of a lot of explanatory analysis as a necessary step towards prediction um, We, we 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 sometimes need multiple variables in order to get to a good explanatory and maybe therefore also to a good predictive model, and that's uh, a problem. All our data, whether they're big in the terminology as used this morning, or whether they are traditional with a, a data set that has been concluded at a certain moment and kind of, kind of frozen in, it, in its constitution. Uh, all in all cases, we we have scarce goods. It's it's not unlimited. Uh, even big data might might be adding in terms of and on a continuous basis uh, sometimes, but they don't necessarily add on the other dimension. And so we have always this problem. How do we get more information? Now, the, 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 this this is where I think data linking comes in. Data linking is, in my view, a a way to extend the reach of the variables, or the, 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 the breadth of the variables in our analysis without necessarily going into new data collection. It's easy enough to say, well, I'd like to study whatever phenomenon it is, and we only have these variables, and we miss that, that we need to go into new data collection. Um, will become increasingly more difficult to find the resources for that so can we, in one way or another, combine information from different data sources and different data sets in a new data set in such a way uh, that we don't have this problem of omitted variables where we where we know for sure that we, we shouldn't omit them um, um, and so that's one part of that is um, what what Chris referred to this morning as record matching. Um, if we have, say, two surveys, or two whatever, uh, could we link this person with this person? In a panel survey we do that, yeah? So we have a panel, we, we interview people five times, and if we if we know for certain who is who, in which way, we combine it and we have record matching in that respect. That's very important. Sometimes that's not that easy, we, because It's not a panel study. Um, So you might have a British election study, and a British social attitude study, uh, and a household study. Uh, These are different samples. uh, And it would be so nice if the political questions of the BES could be inserted into the social attitude survey there, or the other way around. Um, So this is not a matter of, deterministically uh, matching records but in a other fashion so here we get to propensity score matching as a particular approach uh, to to do so <coughs> um, if you don't know if you're not familiar with propensity score matching it's a statistical method that takes into account the likelihood that the persons that you have here uh, are of the same subpopulation as the persons which you have here Uh, and then can combine information from both uh, surveys. In a way, we do this quite often if we are driven by, for instance, notions of cohorts. In a cohort design, we cluster people and what you do, your sample of a thousand cases might be reduced to 15 cohorts, Um, but each cohort is defined on, 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 say, a birth period and we can trace those people in other cohorts as well, and therefore in other sample, samples as well. And then we can trace cohorts over time, uh, even though they're not necessarily same persons. They are, hopefully, if there is sufficient similarity in sampling and all of that, and in fieldwork, they are comparable because they relate to the same popula- subpopulation of an entire population. Can I interrupt you be- because the power on this has just gone, and I need to re- do something. Could we just have a second pause? Okay, so you get record matching, you've got this kind of matching in terms of aggregates, which you do with cohorts, but sometimes you can also think of data linking, is then more often called, of really different kinds of structurally different kinds of data. Um, example that I've been working with myself and which some of my students have been taking up in their own projects, even. Uh, uh, at uh, the level of undergraduate thesis, is the following. It, it, it comes from my involvement in European election study. Uh, uh, and we, European election study is actually a big beast um, that, is, that is conducted in all member states of the European Union. That's one of the things that makes it big, but it's also big because it's different kinds of data. It consists of a representative sample of citizens being interviewed. It consists of a survey of candidates who are up for for, for elections, who are on the ballot of the European Parliament election. It consists of a content analysis of the most important newspaper and television channels for the four weeks leading up to the election. It consists of a content analysis of party manifestos, and it consists of contextual information for all the countries. Now that are five different kinds of things, but it in a way makes sense to think about a lot of this as interconnected with respect to the electoral process. How the electoral process runs, how voters make their decisions, uh, uh, how the media report on it, all of that is to some extent interconnected. If we only stay within one domain, say the voter study, then implicitly we commit the mortal sin of omitted variables because we disregard what the parties stand for we disregard how unanimous they are or how divided they are as could be reflected by the survey of their candidates uh, it disregards whether or not what they want to convey to the audience to the, to the electorate is reflected in the media and all of that so in a way you have here a linking problem of qualitatively different kinds of data but that can be solved, and um, I will provide uh, Steve uh, for repository of these things mm-hmm. with uh, a popularizing article which is, is illustrated uh, in full color, even. <laughs> um, and uh, how that helps you to indeed get to better specified models, but also how it helps you to some extent to not always have to ask for new money for new data collection, but make use of existing data, which can be combined in very different ways. Now, so what's the, what's the uptake of this? What, 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 is, what I would like you to take home from this is basically uh, to imbue with students the value of secondary analysis to introduce them to data sources and data archives and if time permits to have them scope a bit the question whether or not relevant information for whatever it is that they're interested in is out there even if it's not in one data source but maybe distributed over several ones Um, and thinking about it in that way helps, uh, helps to understand the limits of any particular data set, because you confront it, it, with other data sets. It allows you to think about, could that be combined one way or another? Um, and uh, theoretically and conceptually, it, it avoids to some extent uh, the omitted variable problem that you otherwise have. At least to the extent that these data sets contain information. was not in any data set at all, of course. We don't have it. <laughs> um, So that's, I think, uh, what uh, about data and data linking uh, is uh, very useful. Whatever it is that you teach as a a module or as a course in quantitative methods, somewhere in there, and that's almost given by the term quantitative, uh, is statistics. Uh, and the role of statistics and statistical inference um, and, and how to go about that um, I think that there are many different ways in which you can go about it. some people teach courses which are, stati- which are designed to do statistics and, and not much else uh, if you don't have much of a the freedom then, then, then only that that that's your reading if you have statistics within a <coughs> research methods course which has a wider uh, envelope, to put it that way, um, then my inclination would be to put the inferential statistics at the end, not at the beginning. Inferential statistics is daunting for a lot of students, and quite often it's daunting because it, it's to some extent a mind-bending, but the mind-bending is much easier done if they have already developed a mindset towards your research process, towards your research question, towards data analysis without necessarily hypothesis testing or estimation. Um, So, in my experience, it helps to start out with statistical analysis in the descriptive sense uh, and uh, to work with that and not necessarily in the inferential sense and and leave that to a later stage. How much time you have between those two is of course dependent upon what courses uh, and and modules that you teach. Um, Second thing is, if you and now this is a problematic thing always. Every statistical method, every statistical procedure, has a number of assumptions that have to be fulfilled uh, for its uh, valid application. Almost invariably, those assumptions are not fulfilled. I, I mean, this sounds very, but. Uh, We have, for instance, quite often not really interval level or continuous data. Often categorical data. Or we have missing data. Uh, Or we don't have really a random sample. But it's something which hopefully resembles a little bit a random sample. Uh, Or all kinds of other assumptions with respect to distributions are not uh, uh, to the point. if we were to take assumptions as, to, as, as as necessary requirements to be fulfilled I think we could close our shops. Um, so that's not a productive way to go. We have to live with the fact that we violate assumptions and I think we might as well tell our students. But that does not mean that we can be doing so without sensitivity. We have to know, to put it that way, what the risk is that we run when certain certain assumptions are violated, Uh, and where that risk manifests itself in. Um, So if you do a t-test, you can assume that there is equal variance in the various groups that you compare, or that there is not equal variance in the various groups that you compare, and that makes a difference. Uh, and and, and, and fortunately in those kind of cases we know exactly where it makes a difference if if your groups become larger it doesn't make a difference anymore Um, uh, uh, so we know if you have relatively small numbers of cases and if the difference in uh, the variances is a factor 2 or more uh, then you really should not violate that assumption of equal variances or rather you should take the t-test variant that takes into account the unequal variances So there it makes a difference. But if we have thousands of cases, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, It it helps if, to some extent, we ourselves as as, as lecturers and and instructors have something of a feeling like here we can cut corners. And yes, we will get it wrong in the fourth decimal or something like that of a coefficient which nobody cares about. Uh, And here we cannot cut corners because then you run off the road, or is the equivalent of pouring petrol in a diesel car. Um, <coughs> how do we know that? Unfortunately, a lot of the literature doesn't tell us that much about it. In uh, uh, the, the, the literature about experimental conditions, there's a little bit more known, small end studies. Um, uh, because experimentalists uh, have to do this correct, otherwise they can uh, throw their results out. Um, but comparatively there is little known about it. Yet, we can do a lot ourselves in a relatively simple way. We can simulate data. We can, you don't have to go to high level languages. You can simulate data in Excel if you, if you, if you desire to do so. Including random elements in your, in your data generation. And, and you can analyze it. in whatever statistical tools you have available. And that's a very useful way to find out how robust the outcomes of your analysis are for for, uh, violations of assumptions. And I think we have to live with the fact that we violate assumptions. Uh, Take, for instance, our samples 60% response is considered good. Well, that was not 60% random response, that was uh, 40% in a specific group. Um, So we, we, we can by simulation pretty straightforwardly assess how the consequences of this, or what the consequences of this are, of these violations, for our results in terms of whether it's a magnitude difference, whether it's the difference being significant or not significant, where it might even be the difference in sign or whatever. Um, and that helps us a lot to acquire some sensitivity for here we can cut corners and here we cannot uh, we cannot afford to be entirely dogmatic about it because then I think, indeed, a lot of our data, which we have paid a lot for in terms of blood, sweat and tears and money to get them, uh, are not usable. Um, so that's about the violations of assumptions and in, 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 uh, statistical uh, procedures. Uh, yes, we have to live with them but we have to know how robust our data are for violations of a particular matter. Okay, structures of data. Okay, last topic I think that I want to talk about. We are used word-only because most textbooks do this, and because most manuals of computer programs, irrespective of whether it's test or Azure State, or even are for them, start out that way with a rectangular data matrix in all the examples um, with cases and and variables and i think particularly in undergraduate teaching it's very useful if students become really familiar with that that kind of representation of data Uh, that doesn't mean that it couldn't be represented the way uh, in xml form or something like that that uh, chris showed this morning But that's basically still the same representation, it's rows and columns. At a certain moment, and I don't know exactly where this is, but at a certain moment, this becomes so dominant that people hardly realize anymore that the same data could be structured in a different way. And that that offers a number of additional or other alternative opportunities for analysis. So take for instance the rectangular data matrix, what kinds of analysis does that engender? Well, analysis that focuses on the relationship between variables. You get regression, you get correlation, you get all kinds of other things. Good. A lot of real world problems are not always in terms of relationship between variables but in terms of relationship between cases. Which cases are similar, one group, not a group, yeah, not a group, that is not a kind of analysis that is straightforwardly engendered by the rectangular data maker. unless we transpose it. We put people in the columns and variables in the rows. It's the same information. But once you think about it, it opens up a number of different ways to query the data with whatever software tools you use. I'm not going to say that you couldn't do this in any way, shape or form in the traditional form, because you can. Of course, there are cluster analytic procedures which run on the traditional form. But in in the didactics, it helps if you can show people that the whole thing is the same information. But now if we apply the same kind of procedures that we have applied so far, it is about something else in the data that we look at. So we can, that's that's the simplest form of restructuring. But there are other forms of restructuring which are, I think, more important and which have implications even for what we can ask whatsoever. So, take in political science in electoral studies. Chris is in there, Steve is in there I hope many of you can at least relate to that I don't know uh, whether some of you have affinity with electoral studies but traditional kind of thing like okay, uh, which party uh, would you vote for if were elections tomorrow yeah? or, or some form of that and suppose that other than in the United States uh, there are more than two options gosh they got it so simple in the United States <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, so here you got Labour, Conservative you got the Lib Dems, you've got the Greens, you got Jukit, you've got the BNP, and then if you go to Scotland or Wales, you've got yet other options, and so on. So you've got at least six, maybe seven or eight options. Um, now how do we analyze that? Uh, there are different ways in which we can do that. One way, which is often used by people, uh, is the multinomial logistic regression, which is sometimes Referred to, I think it's not a really appropriate description, but someone referred to as regression for nominal level variables, uh, as nominal level dependent variables. So your, your dependent variable is party choice, yeah, which is a set of unordered and discrete and qualitatively different options at the nominal level, and you have a number of explanatory variables, and you use multinomial logistic regression to do that. That's a possibility. There's another possibility which is called conditional regression conditional logistic regression if you do that you have to restructure the data or implicit data being restructured basically what it is that suppose you've got six options that you can choose from every individual record is replaced by six records one for each of the parties and if you can vote for only one then that party that you choose Gets independent variable a one, and the other five get zero. Of course, there are relationships between these five, particularly in terms of the independent <laughs> variables, which are identical. But that's all taken up in the, uh, in, the in, in the analysis. Now, what's the difference between these two methods, and why does it matter? Only in the conditional logistic form can we introduce as explanatory variables characteristics of parties. So it, whether it's a government party or not, so it doesn't matter. Uh, or whether it's a large party or small, or whether it's a party that is troubled by internal divisions, or whether it's united, or whatever else it is that we that we think we know about parties, so that we have information about, that cannot be made to any use in the multinomial logistic regression design. Multinomial logistic regression basically assumes. The only thing that matters are characteristics of the voters, not characteristics of the parties. Very odd. Very very odd. In a conditional regression design, you can, as explicit explanatory variables, introduce all these kind of characteristics of parties. But that implies a different perspective on the data, a different formatting, if you want, a reordering of your data structure. And so data structures are not necessarily given in the way how we get a data matrix from a data archive or from the collectors or how we might make it ourselves in first instance. Which usually is the first question is the first variable, the second question is the second and, and, and so on. Yeah? There's nothing God-given about that. And sometimes it works against us. Um, so we have to think about Fact that that same information can be structured in different ways. The one way is the, the wide way, to some extent, the other is the long way, and then you get for each respondent several records which are interconnected, one for each of these parties. So data structures matter. They matter for <coughs> what we can get out of the data. And if we use a particular data structure, certain questions cannot even be asked. Same information, reordered, restructured, allows us to ask those questions and to address them. So that means when we teach students about data, we also have to teach them a little bit about data structures. And this is maybe the most straightforward to be illustrated when you think about data description. And when you think about a slightly more complex data set than than just a single, suppose you have a single data matrix, but then with a third dimension, which is time. Same people, same questions, but a number of repeated times. How do you describe that in a way that can be conveyed? Well, usually not by the whole data matrix, the data cube in that case. You have, in one way or another, to summarize things. Now it matters whether you first summarize the time dimension, or whether you first summarize the people dimension, or whether you first summarize the variable dimension. You can do each of those. And they lead to different kinds of descriptions, which are equally valid, of the same information base. If you think about it in two consecutive ways of flattening, you can do first distance, that, or first distance that, and so on, it leads to different perspectives of what the data tell us. So I, I, I totally agree with uh, uh, Chris, yes we have to be open for serendipity and for letting the data tell us things, but in that case we also must be open to project the data from different angles or to take a look at the data from different angles rather than only from the default angle that we If in some way or another we can get that across to students, they become empowered, to some extent liberated, uh, and uh, are much more creative in in, in looking at what data can provide them than otherwise. So these were a number of, as I said, slightly disjointed topics that I feel uh, strongly about, and I hope it strikes somewhere for some of you, you.